Hello, and welcome to St. Sinners and Salvageable, a look inside America's electoral system. I'm your host, Ben Ginsburg, and each week through the end of the 2022 election season, we'll examine the issues surrounding casting, counting, and certification of this year's voting. This week, we welcome Neil Kelly, who served as registrar for Orange County, California, the country's fifth largest voting jurisdiction from 2005 to 2022. He is now, and man, are we all jealous of this, a consultant helping out the uh, Hawaii uh, elections officials uh, put on the elections in three islands in Hawaii. Uh, Neil reports he already has enough volunteers, so we're sorry about that. Neil's vantage point in election was that he was in charge of maintaining all voting records and conducting the casting, counting, and certification of elections for 1.9 million voters each year for 18 years. He's the past president of the California Association of Clerks and Elections Officials, as well as the past president for the National Association of County Recorders, Elections Officials, and Clerks. In other words, he has lived and has a granular knowledge of the issues that will be so key in the 2022 and 2024 elections. Uh, Neil is also now the chair of the Committee for Safe and Secure Elections, which blends experts from election administration and law enforcement with the aim of developing policies and practices to protect election workers and voters from violence, threats, and intimidation. In other words, as election administrators go, he is the gold standard, and we look forward to your insights, Neil. Welcome. Thank you, Ben. It's an honor to be here, and I really appreciate the invite. Well, great to have you. Um, so you started out uh, your your career, your adulthood uh, in law enforcement and then in running businesses. How'd you come to be the register uh, registrar of Orange County, California? That's a great question. A good a good one to start off with because you know people don't grow up thinking I'd like to be the registrar of voters somewhere. Um, and, and that was the case for me too. I had my, about half of my uh, professional life to that point was, as you mentioned, I was in law enforcement briefly, and, and then I grew a retail company. Uh, and I sold that company in the early 2000s, late 90s. And um, I sold it to a national firm and thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid 30s, and I'll have an opportunity here to, to take some time off and spend with the kids, etc. Well, that quickly uh, ended because they filed bankruptcy about a year and a half later, and I was carrying all the papers. So there I was uh, in the job market. I hadn't been in the job market for you know sixteen years or so. And during the time though that I ran my company, I was very involved in local politics, as you can imagine. As a small business person, I was um, knee deep in trying to get buildings built and to you know get leases and do things. And you have to be involved in politics. I mean, it's just really necessary. And uh, so I ran for public office. I was very involved with uh, our, our local chambers, was president of our chamber, um, did a lot of things on, on the local level. And Orange County in 2004, after HAVA uh, purchased electronic voting system and launched it and, and fell flat on its face. They had a real problem with the launch. So they were looking for somebody from the outside to come into county government at a senior level. And that's pretty unusual. And make a long story short, three months later, through a series of interviews, it was the only interview I had, had done, as I said, and I was offered the job as chief deputy. So a, a strange way to get into the business and a really 
stroke of luck uh, to, to have that opportunity to do it. <laughs> and so once you got there, uh, what did you find about the way the elections office was run and ways you saw to improve? And those were in the simple, those were in the much simpler days of the early 2000s. Yeah, you're right. And I came in, though, and as the deputy, and I, I was looking around and thinking, this place is a mess. And I, you know, I, I told my friends in Orange County, I have no problem saying that. It just wasn't focused on. Uh, and there was no structure to it, no organization. And about less than a year later, the Registrar of Voters at the time was pulled out of office for a number of issues, including EEO complaints, etc. And so, you know, uh, de facto, I was kind of popped into that position. And uh, there was several elections that we had. Governor Schwarzenegger had the statewide election that was coming up in California. There was a number of congressional seats. And I just jumped in and really grabbed hold of the reins. And so what I did, Ben, is after I was appointed the full-time registrar, which was, was shortly thereafter, I just decided to dismantle everything and start from scratch because we really needed to build an organization first. And then, of course, the election operation would follow. So, Neil, you came in to the job of chief elections administrator. And, of course, one of the things that's under scrutiny in this election cycle is all the things that a chief elections official has to do. So could you go over uh, really what the job description is and what the duties of the job are? Sure. You know, the chief election official in most counties uh, across the country is responsible primarily for three main main things. The first is the voter registration records, uh, maintaining that database, you know, having voter re voters register and, and making sure that data is secure and, and input correctly. Um, the second is to handle petitions that may come in from local government, county government, state government, et cetera. That's, that's an important part of a chief election official and it's verifying signatures and verifying those petitions and then the third, which is what's most visible, is running elections. Um, for instance, in Orange County, we had 34 cities in the county, and I was responsible for running all 34 city elections because they all contracted with the county. There are some counties where you may have a mix. You may have, like in Los Angeles, for instance, you have the city of Los Angeles that runs their own elections, but the county runs some other elections, you know. So it just depends on, on the setup in the county. Um, the other thing is that in California, uh, as an example, most of the large urban counties are appointed officials and the smaller ones are elected officials. So you also have a mix you know, across the country of either elected individuals in this position or appointed like I was. And um, just as a matter of policy, are you in favor of either one more than the other? You know, that's a that's an interesting question, because I would have told you maybe 20 years ago, I, I wouldn't have cared. I think now it it probably makes more sense just from the optic standpoint that they're appointed. But again, you know, there's an argument to be made that if they're elected, they also have kind of a firewall in between them and, and politics in the county. So I think there's advantages either way. My preference and how and especially the size of Orange County, I appreciated having been appointed because I only had one individual that I had to deal with, you know, from a boss standpoint. So I didn't, I, I, I still had a firewall is what I'm trying to say. It's an interesting question. We're likely to see a lot more of as the job of being a chief elections officer gets more and more political. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which brings us to 
the, the political nature of the job we face. Elections in 2022, really in 2020, and certainly in 2024, are really under assault, their credibility. Um, why? You know, I think, and, and by the way, I, I don't think this is anything new. I just think it's grown and it's more amplified. You know, I, re I recall back in 04, 05, 06, there were officials at the local level that were saying, hey, we don't trust the results because there's no reason we would have lost. You know, we believe we would have won. Therefore, we're going to have to say this is because of the election. I just think it's become kind of an easy target because if you don't have an answer that satisfies you, in other words, your campaigning may not have worked, the voters didn't want you in office, whatever the case is, you know, it's an easy target to say, there must be something wrong with counting the ballots. That's the only other place we, we would go. And so I think when you start doing that, and that becomes part of a playbook, is when it becomes certainly problematic because there, and I know we're going to talk about this, but there is so much that goes into running an election that the average voter just has absolutely no idea about um, to ensure that it is, it is a safe and secure election. So I think the answer to your question is just because it is an easy target and it's one to fill the gap when people don't, they don't understand why something has occurred and not gone their way. Well, you and I are both Republicans uh, and I guess the question is, most of the charges these days are coming from the Republican Party. Um, and you know the short-term reasons and perhaps advantages. To play out a little bit, what happens in the long term if the credibility of election is under assault? Yeah, I mean, it can become it can become a real migraine for election officials. And, and not only that, but the voters, you know, in those jurisdictions, because if you continually chip away at that, that continues to erode trust. And if you don't have trust and faith in an election system, take a look at Venezuela, take a look at other third world countries around the world that just really do not have any faith in their electoral system. And that can, you know, ultimately, and I'm, I know I'm going way down the road here, Ben, but ultimately that can, you know, have a, a, a very dramatic and problematic effect on democracy itself. Um, and it all starts with that local election official. Um, the, the one thing that I am encouraged by, I, I do want to say this, is I'm a history buff and I was reading some historical records from Benjamin Franklin, who was saying, we've got to watch the people counting the ballots in Philadelphia. <laughs> well, I mean, this has been going on in this country for a long time. And I think it's absolutely important that there's transparency. And if you want to challenge an election, absolutely have that ability to do so. The problem is when you cross that line. And that's what we've seen more and more of is that line being crossed. And you've got polls that tell us that 30%, a full 30% of the population does not believe in the credibility of election results. So based on your experience, let's let's dive into some of the safeguards that exist in the system that should give people confidence. And as election officials are transparent in allowing the public to see how elections run, what 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 are what they'll see? What are some of the safeguards? Let's start with reg the registration system and the role. How do you know the rules are active? Yeah, that, that's a, a great starting point because that's where it all begins, right? Is when you register to vote. 
And that is such an important topic because I think that list maintenance and the job of maintaining those voter records is, is just as important from an optics perspective as is the election itself, as is counting the ballots. When you register an individual to vote in most states, um, you're doing so on the honor system, kind of, because you are filling in your information, you're signing under penalty of perjury that you are stating, I am this individual. But on top of that, and this goes back to um, you know, changes in the law not too long ago in, in NVRA updates, where you are putting down your driver's license or the last four of your social security, we run data checks against that to get a match to that record. That also ensures that you haven't voted before, that there's not a duplicate record, although duplicates sometimes can be challenging. It's, uh, people don't understand in a county of 2 million people how many people have the same name and the same birth date. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty high. But there's a number of things that go into that. And then you take all of that into account, you activate the record, and then you're still sending out a mailing to those voters. So let's say somebody were to register falsely and I, I send a postcard out to an address, that's another opportunity for that individual to say, hey, time out, that's not me. I didn't register to vote. So there are a number of things that are in place to ensure that the records are as secure as they can be under the current laws and the system we operate in. And I feel that we do a pretty good job overall. And in sending out the postcard, the postcards come back as unable to be delivered to the person, that's an indication too. Absolutely, and that will put a record into an inactive file. Um, so until that voter you know, is able to either vote in person or prove who they are, it, it does stay in an inactive status. All right, moving on from um, the registration system, uh, what happens in the actual casting of ballots? Uh, what, what safeguards are in there? both for in-person voting, absentee, and absentee voting. Yeah, so I'll start with absentee because, and, and I'll just use California as an example, we moved to a vote center model in Orange County right before I retired. And a vote center model means? That means that every voter in the, in the county would receive a, a ballot through the mail, their official ballot, but they would have the option of voting in person if they chose to do so. So they still have those options available to them. And, they, and then there's an 11 day or a 10 day voting, early voting period for in-person voting. But that mail ballot, when it goes out, uh, there's a number of safeguards to ensure that it's going to the correct precinct, to the correct individual, that there's not duplicates in those records. Um, that's all very important before they're mailed. And when that voter fills out that ballot and decides to return it either through a Dropbox or through the mail system, they're putting their information down on that record again, and they have a chance to update their address if they need to, and they're signing that ballot. So when that comes back, the election official is matching that ballot that was received to that active record, and then is doing a check against the signature and what's on file. Now, what a lot of voters don't understand is that uh, most counties operate with a system where they have historical signatures. So let's say you've been registered for 30 years, in Orange County, I may have 15 different signatures on file for you. And as you age, your signature might change a little bit. And so we have opportunities to make uh, different reviews of multiple signatures on file. And that's, that's before that, that ballot is ever even opened, before you go through the opening process. In Orange County, we used an automated system that would actually check the weight of the ballot to ensure there are not multiple ballots inside of an envelope. 
or to, or to ensure that the wrong paperweight is being used. There's a number of things that we did. Um, you can also do things like the type of ink that you print with the ballots. Um, there's ways that you can check to make sure that that's not uh, fraudulently uh, uh, duplicated or photocopied, et cetera. And there's watermarks on those ballots as well. So my, the point I'm trying to make is just like a bank, when they are counting their money um, and making sure that $1 equals what was deposited, et cetera, you're doing the same thing on elections with respect to that ballot. Uh, there's so much that's done. And then on the in-person side, when you come in to vote in person, if it's an electronic check-in system, you can check the record of the voter, you can verify the information so that they have to tell you where their address is, they can't, they can't see it. And then they sign uh, again that, that they're stating, I, you know, I am who I say I am. And then they would vote in person. In some states, as you know, you have to show identification to cast a ballot. In all states, if it's your first time voting in a federal election, you have to show some form of identification before that record is activated. So there's a number of steps that are in place. And the, I'll leave with this, Ben. Uh, I think the average person who mails a letter when they drop it into a blue mailbox has no idea the technology and process behind that to get it from, let's say, California to New York. It's the same thing with elections. Uh, there's a lot that goes into it. Let's, um, let's drill down on two facets of mail-in voting that got a lot of attention uh, in the past election. Um, the first is uh, signature matching. You mentioned that there's an elaborate process. Uh, is that handled by machine or is that individuals, people who actually look at the, the signatures and compare them? Well, it depends on the jurisdiction. And in my jurisdiction, I never purchased a software system because I, I demoed them. I didn't think that they were that helpful or that accurate. Um, and so I used a team of about 40 individuals that looked at every single ballot that came in and compared it with their own eyes. Um, you do have some jurisdictions that might use that software, but really that's kind of just scraping the surface because you're just trying to get the ones that are a really 100% match. And then you still have to manually look at the ones that might, might be off a little bit. And what kind of training did you give to those people who were looking at signatures? Yeah, we, we, the, the trainers received training from uh, the LA County Sheriff's Department or Orange County Sheriff's Department uh, on forensic examination of signatures. Now, I think it's important to point out that under election law in most states, and, and you would know if this is different, um, it's not a forensic examination. It is, you know, according to the courts, it is what the average individual would consider a comparison. You're looking for three points, essentially, in that signature. You're not looking for a forensic exam. But the people, the 40 individuals that do the actual examination are trained by those individuals that got the forensic training so that they can drill down and say, okay, we're going to focus on these three points. Here is the overall basic understanding of signature comparison. And it's a pretty detailed training. Uh, so it's not as though we just turn them loose and say, have at it. And then the other aspect of absentee voting is who gets mailed a ballot. California is one of, I think, nine states that mail a live ballot to all registered voters, whereas a number of other states uh, will mail applications to all voters with uh, the expectation that those who want to vote uh, write, send their applications back, and that's an additional security check. But California doesn't do that came under a lot of criticism from former President Trump 
We didn't realize the few states could actually do do that. Um, but explain why you're confident that universal uh, balloting is still safe and secure. One of the things that I wanted to make sure we had in place before we switched over to automatically mailing ballots to voters, and that is, what is your list maintenance practice? There's a lot of states that have adopted what's called the ERIC system, which does matching between states uh, for duplicates. In California, we didn't use the ERIC system, but individual counties could do their own list maintenance. And I went a step further and used third-party data. So uh, for instance, if somebody moved and, and there was a application made in an apartment, it would trigger a, a data point for me to look at. And those kinds of things can really help to keep the voter rolls as clean as possible. Now, with that being said, you will always have duplicates. Somebody had asked me before, are, are there any dead people on the rolls? There will always be deceased people on the rolls. And the reason for that is, unless you know they're 100% deceased and you don't have accurate data, you're not gonna cancel them. But at the end of the day, if you take all of that into consideration, you still only have one ballot issued per one voter record. So let's say you had three duplicates and you mailed three ballots to one household and they may be off by one letter and a name or one digit and an address, whatever. The first one in is the one that's counted. And as soon as that hits the door, it voids all the others. And so what's important is for people to understand is you can't return all three. Uh, even if, if you tried, even if you went from one vote center to the other and just dropped them off, it's still that first record that's processed automatically voids everything else. And how often did you maintain your roles to uh, be sure they were fresh? So I scrubbed it twice a year with that third party data I was telling you about. I also had a partnership with Caltech, and that's one thing that I really encourage you know, my former colleagues to do is to look for academic partnerships because Caltech and these guys that came in, I mean, you know, guys that put people on the moon at Caltech, they were doing work in looking at my voter rolls to look for anomalies or to look for duplicates that the state couldn't find or that we couldn't find using different algorithms. So it's those kinds of things, if you go that extra mile, that really helps for you to sort out that data and to make sure it's, it's as clean as it can be. And one of the measurements that you can do, Ben, uh, from a metric standpoint, what are your undeliverable rates? You know, my undeliverable rates, I saw that start to drop when I did work with Caltech and third party uh, data suppliers uh, in, the, in below 2%. And, you know, some jurisdictions are upwards of 4 and 5%. Um, you you cleaned your rolls twice a year regularly. Uh, is that a decision that's made by each county independently? Yeah, it depends on the state. You know, if it's a bottom up or top down state with with the state officials, we, as you know, in California, are bottom up, meaning the county is entering data that pushes up to the secretary of state. So in California, it's a county by county decision. It could be different in other states. But the, the beauty of it was, too, that I wasn't limited by the law. In other words, it said you shall do NCOA, National Change of Address, and you shall look at death records, et cetera. It didn't say that I couldn't go beyond that. And so to me, you should be pushing and pushing as far as you can. doesn't mean what the law, you know, to me, there's no ceiling to it. You should just keep pushing. Yeah, an important point. But it, one of the things that we've talked about often here is how I... Uh, in the decentralized U.S. voting system, you do have inconsistencies.
consistencies from county to county in, in many states. And that, of course, can be a recipe for, uh, for legal challenges by pesky lawyers. Well, but that's, that's one of the things that we deal with. I, and I can give you a very quick example of how exactly that's the case. San Diego County was handling provisional ballots different than I was in Orange County. There was a cross-county recount in a district. Of course, that's going to create problems. And like you pointed out, that that was a setup for a legal challenge. So absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay, let's go to the safeguards for the actual counting of the votes uh, when that happened. What's the basic mechanism that, that's used and uh, what checks and balances are in the system? There are a number, and I will just kind of briefly go over with you. Once we get to that point where the ballot's going to be open, so it's I've already talked to you about you know verifying the voter record. We slice open that that envelope, and that ballot becomes separate from the envelope, so it's now no longer tied to a voter. So the secrecy of that ballot is maintained. It goes through a process of removal from the envelope and then flattening using a team um, that that's all they do is flatten those ballots out. And then it goes into a scanning process. And in that scanning process, they're scanned in batches. And it's all done under public review and scrutiny. Uh, in fact, I had a fishbowl in Orange County where the public could just stand there and stare at them doing this all day long. Um, and we go through a very detailed quality control process to make sure that we haven't scanned duplicate ballots because you don't wanna be scanning multiple batches, obviously. There are safeguards in place in many states uh, where you can't scan uh, the same ballot twice. In other words, if somebody tried to photocopy it, that's gonna reject it based on the barcode. And then when it goes into the counting system itself, there are multiple people that are involved in that process and go through a very detailed uh, quality control process to make sure that that data that is being uploaded and processed uh, is only being uploaded and processed once. Those unofficial results that you see online, I think a lot of people think that's the, that's the official result. It's not. There's a number of things during the 30 days after election day that we go through um, to make sure that the count is correct before you ever make it official at the very end of that process. And I'm happy to talk about those steps as well. Um, Neil, could you describe the role of poll watchers uh, in other words, the parties and candidates have observers. I, you know, it's funny, Ben, because I am at odds sometimes with some of my former colleagues about that process, because I actually encourage it. I would actively promote groups and organizations to come in and watch this process, because to me, the optics of running a safe and secure election are just as important as the mechanics of running it. And if you have people that are observing that process, that holds election officials accountable. And I think that's really important. Um, now, the problem is, is when you have poll watchers or groups or organizations that may come in with an agenda that is, is counterproductive to a, an efficient election. And it, it, as long as they're not interfering in the process, I'm all for it. If they cross that line, they start interfering and challenging voters, et cetera, then we're going to have a problem. That's going to be an issue. Um, but by and large, I found that most observers did so with respect, and they did so because they were wanting to just ensure that the ballots were counted correctly. Uh, and I think that's important. This will vary some by state, but what could a 
weaponized poll watcher do in a polling place? What will your your fellow election officials have to watch out for, and what can they do about it? Yeah, I think one of the things that comes to mind right away, because I encountered this myself over the years, where people would challenge voters that came in and said, and it could be based on race, for instance, and they might say, you know, I don't think you, uh, you weren't speaking English when you were walking in, and I don't think you should be in here voting. I mean, I, I saw that myself, and that was happening. Um, and you have to be, as an election official, prepared to immediately deal with that, and you're not going to tolerate it. You know, if, if, a, if a citizen is coming in and they have that right to vote and they're legitimately registered, the only one challenging a voter should be the election official, should not be these, these poll watchers and, and uh, individuals that are out there. That can be a real problem. The other is just disruption in general. Um, and I had a number of instances where that would occur in a vote center or polling place, and that can slow the process down or stop voting. And we're not going to tolerate that either. Um, I had a very strong partnership with law enforcement teams in my county, and, and we would respond very quickly to that. So I think election officials just need to have a plan in place and, and prepare for that. Uh, but again, by and large, I do want to say that, that the majority of, of, of observers um, have, have been very respectful. And if there is a rowdy poll watcher, it's up to law enforcement to remove the person. You work it out that way. Yeah, generally the election official will respond first. You know, I had teams that would go out into the vote centers, <clears throat> radio dispatched, and we'd still be on the sheriff's network and, and frequency, but we would try and, and resolve that first. If it escalated and it got to the point where we needed law enforcement involved, I had plainclothes investigators with the district attorney's office stationed in the field. They would respond because, you know, an armed uh, uniformed response to polling places is not always a good idea, um, but certainly having these plainclothes investigators respond was terrific because it, it often put a stop to it immediately. Good point, and one I hope we do not face in, uh, in 2022. So taking a look at all the safeguards that you described for the various aspects of the registration, casting, and counting of votes, What's your reaction to the charges that our elections aren't accurate, fraudulent, or rigged? You know, as you mentioned, I've been a lifelong Republican, and, and uh, I think a lot of the concern over elections, and it depends, I guess, on, on the timing, but it has been recently the GOP. And uh, I just have, have to say, I think there are reasonable people when they hear reasonable explanations and they understand the process that can come to different conclusions. Elections in this country have so many layers of safeguards and protections in place that the average voter, again, doesn't understand um, that these are, by the time you get to official results, these are accurate, safe, and secure elections. Now, the problem is that, again, I mentioned to you that the, this being the playbook of some candidates, um, that, well, if I lost, it must be because of the ballot counting is not the direction we should be going in. I think as, as long as there are robust audits in place, as long as there are robust uh, protections and transparency in place, this is about as secure as uh, you're going to get in any election system across the world, in my opinion. Yep. And so there are nonetheless a lot of uh, election administrators who are going to face the charges of, of 
uh, fraudulent election. What should they proactively be doing now to be able to refute those charges? Yeah, I think you just have to be extremely proactive when it comes to communicating with your voters. And I have I have read and heard some people say, well, I do this on social media, I do that. Look, that's not going to solve this. You know, you have to go beyond that. And I actually inserted packets in the mail ballot packets for every single voter. You're talking about almost 2 million packets that went out with information very detailed on what we do, how we do it, and why elections are secure and safe. You have to communicate personally with each individual voter, in my opinion. It's going to take time to change hearts and minds. And how do you change a belief system? <laughs> you know, that, that, that does not happen overnight. Um, but, but my point is, we must communicate often, frequently, and as much as possible with our voters directly. That is the best thing that we can be doing. That's really good advice that I hope uh, election administrators in all 10,000 jurisdictions in the country um, heed. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the challenges actually faced on administrators. Uh, the great pressure from 30% of the voters uh, not believing in the, the credibility of elections and it seems like the challenges to elections officials fall into at least two categories. One is actual physical threats and intimidation, including records requests uh, on slide. And uh, the second is the charges of fraudulent and rigged that you have to deal with post-election. But the threats and harassment, both physical and legal, did you experience any of that yourself? And, Describe a little bit what it was like. Yeah, I did. And uh, I'll tell you, it went back a little bit before 2020, because in 2018 in Orange County, we had uh, several congressional districts that flipped from red to blue. And then shortly after that, Orange County, which is, you know, for decades was known as a Republican stronghold, that flipped uh, in voter registration to majority Dem. And so the you know, the questions began for me in 2018 was, you know, how could this possibly happen? And, um, but that just kind of escalated and grew as we went into 2020 and, and became amplified. Um, and after the 2020 presidential election, I had uh, several hundred people that came and protested outside of my office. Uh, it was mostly a Q protest uh, in favor of, of QAnon, but there were individuals in there that were calling for recounts, et cetera, et cetera. And during that time, I had the sheriff's department, you know, follow me wherever I went. Uh, I did receive veiled threats, you know, things like if you certify this election, there will be blood on the ballots and there will be blood on your hands and, you know, these kinds of things. And so, yeah, it, it does become unsettling. I will say that I did not receive the kinds of threats uh, as some of my colleagues did in, in some battleground states where it was just a direct death threat to your life and, and constant harassment. Uh, but nevertheless, it still rattles your cage. And so I, I did experience that myself. And how does that impact the way an election administrator will do his or her job in the coming election if they are rattled? And does this actually have an impact on the results? I, I, not on the results, but I think, it could, I think people can respond one of two ways. One is it makes you more um, determined to dig in and, and get this job done 
The other is it might say, look, I need to get out of this. And it might rattle you enough that you don't want to do the job anymore. I mean, I came from a law enforcement background and I just, to be quite frank with you, Ben, I wasn't going to take any garbage. I mean, I was, I was going to run an election that was transparent and I was going to communicate with the voters and this other nonsense going on. I just didn't have it. I wouldn't take it. Um, yeah, there was a point there where there were 30 plus people that were inside my office and kind of yelling and screaming at my team. And I, I walked in and I said, we're done here. This is it. And I got him, I removed him from the office. So I guess the point is that, you know, there, you can react one of two different ways. And the, the problem is we're seeing election officials leaving in very large numbers across the country because some folks have just been beaten down over time. Um, and this is a real problem. Yeah, and will actually have a detrimental effect on all voters from all parties. You've uh, become the chair of a group called the Committee for Safe and Secure Elections. Tell us about that and why you helped start it and what you aim to do with it. Yeah, this uh, started back in April of this year. It's a 32-member body made up half of, of elected sheriffs and chiefs of police and the other half election officials. And the goal behind this was coming together with several organizations across the country to, to do just kind of what I was saying before is to stand up and say, look, this has got to stop. And what can we do to help reduce the risk of threats, not just to election officials, but to polling places and to poll workers, et cetera. This is not where we should be, in my opinion, as a country, because you've got to have trust and faith that's verified. I'm not just saying, give me trust and faith. You need to verify it, but you got to have somebody that's in charge of running those elections. And if you want to keep running them out of town, you're going to keep eroding democracy. Um, and so this committee came together to work with election officials and law enforcement to find solutions to some of these problems. So one of the phenomenon we're seeing this election cycle is an inundation of public record requests for the cast vote records, which reflect uh, how the ballots came in, challenges to registration. And they are much greater than they have ever been in past election cycles. Can you describe the added burden that that would put on elections officials and how best they should deal with the situation? Yeah, the first thing I'm going to say is the, I'm not sure who's thinking this is the way you're going to win elections by inundating a, an office with records requests that, by the way, are just copy and paste. The most of the ones that I saw, and we would get, you know, upwards of 30 a month that were just copy and paste from the Internet. And so we would have a standard response to every single one saying we've already responded to the original requester. You know, here's here's copies of what we sent. Um so in that sense, it's just kind of silly, in my opinion, but there are legitimate requests and those do come in. And when you're flooded with these multiple uh, additional duplicates or additional requests, it slows things down. You have to put multiple people on this. It takes a long time to respond to public records requests and do it and do it appropriately. So that can really slow you down. Um, there are some things that come in and requests that are just constant. Like, for instance, I would get requests for images of the ballots. Well, we would deny that under California law, and there's a number of, of re reasons you can reject that in California. But um, bottom line is, it's just not doing, if this is not the way you're going to solve the problem and, and try and win elections, I can tell you that. Yeah. Um, 
So we're we're sort of in a period where there's a constant discussion about the accuracy of uh, of election results. Does that have a long term? Can that have a long term impact on participation in elections? You talk to a lot of voters and other election officials, and uh, how does that play out? Yeah, it, I think it definitely can, because what's going to happen is if you have somebody that just absolutely doesn't have faith that the ballot's going to be counted um, correctly, accurately, et cetera, there's going to be safeguards in place. They And I've heard them say this, they're not going to waste their time to cast a ballot if they don't feel it's, it's going to be safe and secure. Um, and so you can hurt participation across, across all major parties and even minor parties. Um, I will say this, you know, in 2020, we had one of the highest turnouts in California and almost 90% in Orange County. And then we had the gubernatorial recall in 2021. And we still had pretty high turnout in that in the high 60s. But anecdotally, I would hear from people that would say, hey, if I don't have trust, you know, why should I cast my ballot? So I think we have to be very careful about that. Not only can it hurt participation, but it can just erode democracy in, in general. It can indeed. So Let's close on a little bit of an upside, of an up note here, if we can. I think one of the things that's always impressed me about elections officials is an acknowledgement that things can always been improved, that it is uh, a system with many moving parts, and you all look for ways to improve election systems. And that's particularly important when they're under attack, as they are now. So what would the Neil Kelly uh uh, solutions or improvements to our election system entail. Wow, that's a great way to end it, Ben. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, wave your magic wand. Uh, I will tell you this, and I've given a lot of thought to this. I think signatures have got to go, in my opinion. I think we're at the point where, you know, the, the new generation uh, is not using signatures like uh, others have, where it's more formalized and cursive and you can actually see and, you know, make comparisons. Um, that's, that's a real problem. And I think we need to think about ways to get beyond that, whether that's biometrics. I mean, and that's going to be a privacy issue. I mean, there's all sorts of problems. But if I were to wave a magic wand, I would say the optics of improving that process to ensure that that ballot package you have in your hand actually belongs to you, and there's no doubt about that, is one piece of evidence that we can really look towards to, or one, one mechanism we can look towards to really improve that process. Not only the optics of it, but the actual understanding that belongs to that individual um, is, is very important. So I think that's that's certainly one thing right off the top. The other is, We've got to find better ways to communicate, as I mentioned earlier, to the voters. We are not going to win. I mean, Ben, if we, we put all of our energy and effort into communicating one thing to the voters, and then you have somebody at a national level that might say a few things and just erode everything you did is, is, is a challenge. How do we fight that? Um, and so, again, if I could wave the magic wand, I would say that we would be communicating with voters in a different way and more often. Those are two great solutions. And Neil, thank you very much for your perspectives on all this. Uh, we've been talking with Neil Kelly, the former registrar of Orange County, California, and now the holder of the dream job of consultant to uh, the Hawaii election uh, officials. 
Neil, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Ben. You've been listening to Saints, Sinners, and Salvageables, and we'll be back next week. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.